Anderson has a cheese question. <laughs> she does. Yeah. We were, I was intrigued by the uh, labels in the kitchen. What is allowable cheese? What is um, allowable chocolate? Uh, well, the very first day I arrived in Wat Pananachar, more than 40 years ago, I had the same question. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the mysteries of the universe. Does he say so? Actually, I had a different question. Okay. I feel like I'm in school thinking, this is a stupid question, don't ask it. But I'm going to ask it. Um, do monks cry? From time to time. Yeah. So. Just because you have a shaved head and a robe doesn't mean that. You can have a hairy mind. I heard that yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> it's a uh, the robe and the the um, monastic vocation are a training. I'm sure our one-day-old Danigarika would testify that just by shaving your head and putting robes on, it doesn't automatically change everything on the inside. No. And so that um, the uh, the tears and laughter and everything else in between is all sort of natural part of the human realm and uh, occur at different times, different situations. And so along the way there are going to be things that are challenging, difficult, sad, um, regrettable, and so forth, and then the tears flow. But uh, the uh, the more that the, uh, <coughs> the the monastic life is seen as a as a sort of process of training rather than an identity, it's like you don't become a Buddhist nun to be a nun you become a nun to stop suffering. Mm -hmm. And so it's like getting into a vehicle. You don't get into the vehicle because you want to be in the vehicle. You, want to, you get in the vehicle because you want to go to Toronto or to Temple, New Hampshire or Ottawa. It's like that's why you get in it. Mm -hmm. The point is not to get in the car, but if you don't get in the car, you won't get to the destination. Well, not so quickly. So uh, the people very often relate to the robe as, a, as an identity or a sort of social status or, or, or what you are. And, but it's more of a declaration of intent or a reminder of intent to yourself and to, to the world rather than a, a, a thing that you are. So um, uh, along the way there are going to be times where you feel sad. Like... Uh, when Ajahn Sumedho's mother died, uh, he was in the United States and uh, he'd just been to see her. She lived in Southern California in San Diego. Uh, <clears throat> his father had passed away about six months before and he was um, visiting his, mo his mother and then sister and brother-in-law all down in San Diego together. And his mum came to see him off, you know, they all came to see him off at the airport to wave goodbye, you know, nice to see him. He flew up to the San Francisco uh, Bay Area to lead a 10-day retreat, and then his mother died that night. She um, didn't even feel particularly ill, but um, his sister you know, said, you know, Mum, you look a bit feverish, and 
took a temperature. Mm, yeah, yeah, you're, you're running a temperature. We should take you to the hospital. Oh, you know, don't be so silly. I'm fine. Took her to the hospital, um, checked her in. She woke up at six o'clock the next morning. The nurse gave her a cup of tea. She apparently took one sip of the tea, put the cup down and died. So then uh, we got the call from, uh, from his sister, Virginia, in England, because he was on the road, you know, it was before cell phones. And so then we had to, to track him down and give him a message that his mother had just died. And uh, so he was supposed to be beginning uh, a 10-day retreat, so leading a 10-day retreat that, that day. And uh, so we, we managed to find him at this uh, house, layperson's house in San Francisco, and uh, <coughs> he was given the, the news about his mother, and then the, uh, the, the person who was driving up to the retreat said, it was a little bit tricky because I was, it was a stick shift car, <laughs> but Ajahn Sumedho just sat in the passenger seat you know, crying, and uh, he said he wanted to hold my hand. It's, it's uh, it's tricky with a stick shift. <laughs> the, the Ajahn wants to hold my hand, okay. <laughs> but, uh, and then the whole retreat uh, was very much around that experience of just having lost his mother. So that, uh, and then he had to go down halfway through down to San Diego for her funeral and then came back. So he was away for a couple of days in the middle of the retreat. So it's just, just because you're a great spiritual master doesn't mean to say that you're your feelings are shut down, and uh, particularly with uh, with respect to to mothers, you know that has a, they have a, mm-hmm. has a unique connection there, and um, so that uh, and he wasn't the slightest bit embarrassed. You know, most of the dumb, I, I wasn't there, but apparently most of the talks in the retreat were around that sense of working with emotion and and grief and such like. The um, when I was at a, 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 a teaching of, the, of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, I think it was in Boston. <clears throat> it was a, we'd had one of these um, mind and life conferences on, with His Holiness about um, Buddhism and neuroscience and such like. And he was doing a big public talk in Boston, this sort of huge arena with about fifteen thousand people. And uh, there was a time for some questions. And uh, during the, the one of the, the expositions, and the Dalai Lama had been talking about. The, the epitome of, of loving-kindness is the mother's relationship to the child. So, of course, being egalitarian in America, some guy says, you know, well, surely the relationship to the father is equally important. <laughs> <laughs> and his holiness said, no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Not the same. It was, it, was that, it was that short. It was like, no, no qualification. It was just like, oh, no. <laughs> you could read his face. It's like, <laughs> the, the, guy, the question was coming from a theoretical position, but the Dalai Lama said, "Fathers and children, mothers and children, not, not the same." So. Are you going to have some tea then? Oh, I'm fine for now. Yes. Mm-hmm. What about the late? I mean, the, the tea is there oh. for everybody. Please help oh. yourselves. Don't just Seven. watch us drink tea. <laughs> <laughs> Have vicarious refreshments.
full of stories of enlightened beings and enlightened teachers and great sages crying, mm -hmm. getting angry, I suppose not holding on to it. Yeah, and many years ago I had the experience of, um, probably the last time I cried, it was um, somewhere back in 1996. And uh, it was very interesting because as uh, there was a, a, um, a, a feeling of, of grief or, and uh, sadness. And uh, as soon as my mind started to explain or to quote unquote, do something with it, then the tears stopped. And as soon as I just let myself feel it, then they would, they would just start running again. So it got kind of interesting, like you could sort of turn the tap on and turn it off. <laughs> 
But as soon as the, the thinking mind started to uh, to, ex- to to explain or to um, analyze to, or to do something with the emotion, then it just it, it kind of somehow obstructed, it. and then uh, just to, to let it be and just to let that feeling of sad, that sense of grief, just be felt, then then. The tears were flowing. And it was really, it was very interesting because it was, it was very sad. It was, it was psychologically painful, but it was, it was completely peaceful. Mm. And the thinking was not peaceful. Mm. <laughs> you know, when the, when the mind was trying to explain or, or to qualify or analyze, then, then there was um, <clears throat> the, the sense of. You know, limitation or, or stress, but it was with the actual feeling, the emotion itself. There was the mind, the mind was quite peaceful. It was sad, it was painful, but it was quite, it was absolutely all right. Mm-hmm. Not overriding it in any way, but rather just letting it, letting it be known. Then it was, uh, it was painful, but it was not a, a, a problem. So I think on on the. Uh, Weekend, I think I was somewhere along the line. I was talking about the teaching of the arrow that the uh, that the Buddha used. Again, I can't remember what I said to to who, where, <laughs> and when. But the uh, it's a very significant teaching, and in in the the sort of uh, present day climate of interest in mindfulness and the sort of mindfulness programs popping up here, there, and everywhere, all over the planet. This is one of the, the teachings that is most often quoted and is most relevant in terms of any sort of mindfulness training. Because if you, do you remember, were you around when I was I quoted it? So it's a the Buddha's using a, a military analogy. He was a soldier before he was a monk, so he has, he often uses military images, and it's that, uh, the image of a, of a soldier on the battlefield, and the soldier gets shot by an arrow. So that said, so the first arrow is the experience of physical pain. So nobody, no living being can, can avoid that, that arrow. If, you know, if you if you're a, have a body, you have a mind, and, you're, and there's an experience of living, there will be pain. So that first arrow is not avoidable. And then what he called the second arrow, uh, which is the uh, resenting, uh, fearing what's going to happen next, uh, complaining, um, the <clears throat> stressing, negotiating, all of that that happens around the painful feeling, that's the second arrow. And the second arrow can be avoided. And when in, uh, in the Buddhist, Buddhist teaching, I don't know how familiar you are with, with Buddhist teachings, but what's called the Four Noble Truths. Yes. So the, 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 in the Four Noble Truths, um, that the, the whole thing hinges around the ending of suffering. That, and it's all to do with the second arrow, not the first one. So um, sometimes people feel that they're interested in Buddhism because they don't want to experience any pain. <laughs> so I usually say, well, wrong. <laughs> you're in the wrong universe. <laughs> yeah. And so the, that uh, quality of dukkha, the, the sutta itself only refers to physical pain. It, it, it's, it's quite a short teaching. It's not. It's not very extensive. It's quite short, and it only talks about physical pain. But what, what the Buddha is pointing out is that the second arrow is completely avoidable. So even though there might be physical pain and quite extreme, the mind doesn't have to make a problem out of it. 
it doesn't mean that you're passive. It doesn't mean that you don't sort of get out of the heat <laughs> if you're if you're burning hot in the sunshine, or you're or you're you've got an injury. It doesn't mean that you don't treat it. You you take care of of things. You don't deliberately let pain accumulate. Um, but the 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 mind's capacity and habit of turning it into a problem and creating stress around it—that's all the, the the second, well, well, that second arrow—and that's what the the teaching of the, the noble truths relates to. So, the four noble truths, uh, of speaking of the ending of suffering, is ending of that stressing, negotiating, um, fretting, uh, fearing, hoping, um, etc. That that happens around. Um, the experience of suffering, and that can also be around pleasant feelings as well. You know, because uh, sometimes people misunderstand uh, the Buddha's teaching when he says something like, "You know, happiness is also unsatisfactory." They say, well, "That's really sour." You know, what a negative attitude. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. happiness is good. You know, I really enjoy it. But if you you don't have to be a genius, or, or you know, you're particularly observant to notice that. Once you've had a really happy experience, or something that's really pleasurable, the feeling of, of regret or um, or loss when it's over can be very, <laughs> very, very, very uh, swiftly following. You know, that, you know, tucking into some you know large portions of your favourite food. Oh, this is great. This is amazing. This is fantastic. I was going to do this again. <laughs> I finished the whole pizza. You know. What, what happened to the rest of the cheesecake? <laughs> and so, you know, yeah, you're, you're happy, you're enjoying the thing while you're consuming it, but then very quickly after that, and that's why that, uh, within Buddhist expression of things, we'd say that happiness or, or pleasure is also unsatisfactory. Even something that's very, very wholesome. Again, quoting Ajahn Mahabur, one of the best examples of this um, how extremely blissful and wholesome states can be, can be dukkha, can be unsatisfactory. Is uh, when he was a young monk, uh, he was quite adept at meditation. He'd already become, he'd been a scholar monk before he went to train with Achen Achen Man. And uh, but he he started to train in meditation and became quite adept quite quickly. And uh, the, the style of practice in, in that era was that people would stay with the teacher for, for a few weeks, you know, two or three weeks, and then go off and practice by themselves for a few months, and then come back and check in with the teacher and, and sort of get some feedback on how things are going. So uh, Ajahn Mahabur had, had um, gone to train with Ajahn Man and had been with him some, for some time, had gone off to meditate by himself and had uh, developed some you know, really profound blissful states of, of absorption you're really very very strong and <clears throat> continuous um, experiences of, of, of a very profoundly peaceful absorbed states very blissful states so he was kind of pleased with himself I thought wow that, that didn't take long it was pretty good yeah. <laughs> the Ajahn will be impressed by this you know, those kind of <laughs> those kind of thoughts that can easily go through the mind so I'll just kind of oh, I better go and tell the Ajahn <laughs> and he might, and he might be impressed. You know. So he went back to see uh, Venerable Ajahn Man, and Ajahn Man said, "Oh, you're wasting your time. <laughs> Don't do that because, um, yeah, it's 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 pleasant and it's blissful, and, and they're wholesome in their own right. But that's not very liberating. It's much more useful just to sustain your concentration at the level of 
of just access, what they call access concentration, so that you're aware of the the aspects of body and mind, the five khandhas arising and passing mm-hmm. away, and that's where wisdom will most readily arise. And uh, the, the young Ajahn famously disagreed, which one does not do with your enlightened Ajahn. <laughs> or even an unenlightened Ajahn, usually. And they had this real ding-dong uh, uh, argument, and uh, which could be heard at some distance around the monastery. And so and Ajahn Mahabur was quite junior, and so there were the other monks and novices who were around like, what's he doing, what's he doing? And he's arguing with the Ajahn, he, is, he was crazy, he was out of his mind. But Ajahn Mahabur was adamant, like, this, this can't be unwholesome, this is definitely the way to, to enlightenment, you know, I, I think you're wrong, there can't be anything bad about these, you know, because it's so blissful, it's so beautiful, it's so powerful, what could be wrong? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so they, uh, so finally Ajahn, Ajahn Man just said, okay, okay, you're on your own, go, go off, okay, you know, it's your business, if, you, if you're certain of your own mind, that's fine, off you go. <clears throat> so anyway, Ajahn Mahabur, sure of his own rightness, then went off to, again, to you know, pay his respects and, and, and uh, took off shortly after and went to go meditate by himself. But of course, having argued with his teacher, who was an enlightened being, that was a little kind of burr in the, uh, in the sock or a stone in the shoe. <laughs> and uh, he couldn't get into those states of concentration anymore. No matter how hard he tried, he's a pretty determined person and he tried really hard and he couldn't he couldn't um, focus his attention in the same way there was this the, 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 he just couldn't get the, the same kind of absorption and he tried for weeks and weeks and weeks and he couldn't he couldn't get back there so then he made the comment that uh, if anybody other than uh, venerable Ajahn Mahana had been responsible for me losing those beautiful mind states I would have killed them <laughs> so he's a monk, you know. He's gone forth as a as a homeless one, as a harmless one, and and so those those blissful, wholesome states then became motivation for murder. <coughs> but because of his respect for Ajahn Man, and he had the wisdom to go back and go, I think you're right. You know, will you will you accept me back and can I can you straighten me out please can you just hit me harder please <laughs> <laughs> so um, so in that respect the um, even pleasant experiences are, are unsatisfactory so the teaching of the two arrows then it's the sutta only refers to the physical pain aspect but it also translates to mental pain. And that's where, uh, where it's such an incredibly helpful teaching. Because like, like that experience that I was describing back in the mid-90s where uh, the, I could feel grief with tears running down my face and it was absolutely not a problem. There was, nothing, there was no thing that was wrong or no thing that was sort of bad about it or unwanted. It was just, that's just what's happening. And uh, that... Um, that's dodging the second arrow. So that, that's a, a very, very useful skill. It's the kind of skill you can most easily learn with physical pain because that's more sort of monosyllabic, like, ow, <laughs> want to move. <laughs> Whereas emotional pain, is like, it's all tied up with our stories. You know, 
the people that we work with, the people in our families, the, you know, the, and those uh, emotions are necessarily more complicated. So it's less easy to be objective about it. But it works in exactly the same way. So that the, the mind can be um, attentive to the, the feelings of fear or anger or jealousy or you know, passion or regret, grief, you know, the whole you know, spectrum. And, uh, and knowing those as just as they are, then uh, the mind can be fully at peace with it. And in the, in the, the uh, foundations of mindfulness, when the Buddha describes that, that area to different mind states, um, he, he's, it's, uh, he talks about knowing the angry mind is angry, knowing the mind free of anger is free of anger, and the agitated mind is agitated, the mind free of agitation is free of agitation. The, the expanded mind is expanded, the contracted mind is contracted, and so on. So that there's this, this uh, there's no there's no value judgment made in any of those emotions. It doesn't say anger is unwholesome and freedom from anger is wholesome, or agitation is not helpful and freedom from agitation is good. In that particular teaching, there's no um, no reference to any kind of um, wholesome or unwholesome. There's no value judgment, but just there is this. This is what's being experienced right now, and so that. Uh, <clears throat> along with that so that then there can be you know, joyful feelings blissful feelings there can be you know, tears there can be uh, agitated heat um, whatever and the, the, the mind can know that this is what's happening because you can't uncause something that's already been caused so if you um, uh, the, the, the emotion will arise because of a set of causes you know, because of your memory or because of a, a, um, a particular dynamic of a situation you know, sort of just some of you know, where you're standing <laughs> like you feel fear because a large object is moving towards you, you know. what's that? Um, but the, uh, you can't undo the things that have been caused already but you can have an effect on the way that those causes, those, the effects of those causes are received does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I, I actually wonder, what is the right view on um, living with pain, for example? I have a child who lives with pain and it's part of her reality forever, pretty much. So. Well, the, the, the Buddha also had chronic back pain when he was older. Yeah, it's, it's very very similar. It's just, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, how old your child will be, or how much they can relate to, sort of uh, uh, adjusting an attitude below below about the age of seven. It's very difficult for a child to mm-hmm. objectify pain and pleasure. Uh, when they're they're about seven, then they're able they're, they're capable of abstract thinking. So below seven, it's difficult. You know, pain is like real. Yeah. <laughs> pleasure is absolutely real, but. Um, at the age of about seven, then a, uh, a person can recognize, oh, this, uh, this happiness is something that I'm feeling, or this pain is something that I'm feeling, this sadness is something that I'm, I'm feeling. Um, and that they can, there's a capacity to get a bit of a distance on it. So uh, the, the degree to which that, that's possible to um, 
not pretend that the, the, the pain is sort of bad and wrong and shouldn't be there, but rather how to make peace with pain and not, not to make it an enemy, not to make it a, something that is uh, bad and wrong, but to see that this is part of our, uh, our life. And that, because it's the, the wrongness that the mind creates that is, or the not fairness, you know, why me is not fair, um, that's the second arrow. And that, uh, you know, years and years ago, I, I studied uh, physiology in university, and uh, I was just co- continually amazed at how complicated and uh, sort of impossibly refined the body is. And I, I would be just sometimes I'd literally be sort of staggering out of the lecture theatre, just amazed that I could stagger, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was at London University, and then you go out. The one of the lecture halls was a Middlesex hospital, and it kind of opened up on this big street, and and you sort of come out onto the onto the sidewalk, and there's people people walking, driving cars. <laughs> you know, I just I just feel like amazed. How can any of us do any of this? Because there's so much that can go wrong. There's, so, there's billions of chemical reactions that are occurring. It's like minute by minute, and that's and I, I just have this sort of, almost like a Dizziness. Like, how, how are any of us even standing up or seeing or hearing? You know, that it, all of these different functions of the body is like, ah, you know, this is amazing that we function as well as we do, and that we've got as, as few hospitals as we, as we have. You know, because they're so complicated. You know, not, not just humans. I mean, obviously, all other living beings too. But uh, it's this mind-boggling, absolutely. It's just staggering that these things work as well as they do. It's flat out miraculous. So, and that really prepared me quite well for for Buddha Dharma because when you come to the the monastery and then you have this chanting, "I'm of the nature to age, I'm of the nature to sick, and I'm of the nature to die." Like, well, of course, <laughs> you know, like it's obvious. <laughs> you know, naturally, when you've got an ailment or an injury yourself, you go, "Oh dear, you know, what's going to happen with that?" Oh, that's not comfortable. Oh. oh. I hope that's not permanent. You know, there's that personal grasping around it. I'm sure as a mother with a child, you have a very profound sort of caring, wanting the pain to stop, which is completely natural. But those reflections on on the nature of the body and, and its fragility, its its uncertainty, it's really helpful because you're, you're turning towards what the actuality is. That, uh, you know, you <clears throat> you don't have to look very far in the natural world, around right? you know, the trees and the animals and the birds, and the, to see, yeah, that not every leaf that comes forth in spring makes it all the way through to autumn. <laughs> <laughs> not every flower that buds actually comes into full bloom and and has its pollen and, and uh, uh, spread to other places or bears fruit. It's just it's not the way nature works, and then you, it helps you. So it's it's kind of blunt. It's a bit of a brutal teaching in some respects because it's. If we we can easily have a childlike attitude, like, please kiss it better, mummy. You know, tell me it'll be all right. <laughs> and it, and it, so if you're three, then it's that helps. You know, kiss it better, and then it feels better. <laughs> And there is even some medical basis for that kind of thing. But 
the 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 Buddha's teaching is more of a, a teaching that helps us to have more of a, of a non-childish perspective. People, why should your body or your family be the ones who never go to hospital? <laughs> and how could how could that be? Why should, why why should your life be somehow completely different from other people's? And then it doesn't take a lot of reflection because something in the heart goes, oh, yeah. yeah so the, there's that meeting of that personal preference of like, well, not me. You know, <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to get hit by this. And I don't want to get I don't want to get the flu bug. And then the which is a sort of instinctual childlike reaction but then if we draw go a couple of layers deeper and draw upon our wisdom then we recognize well why not me yeah, and then and then that even though it's a bit it's sort of challenging to the ego it's liberating to the heart because then mm-hmm. when that's recognized it's, oh, of course mm-hmm. what, what was I thinking Yes, yeah. Um, through my teens, from about from about thirteen. Uh, I mean, I first started asking, trying to figure out life, the universe, and everything when I was about ten or eleven, and then, um, and it seemed it, it hinged a lot around freedom and desire. Sort of thinking that freedom is getting what you want whenever you want it. That is what freedom is. Um, and <clears throat> but then uh, what I, I, I found from about 13 onwards, um, quite a number of times I was in situations that were absolutely perfect, sort of picture book perfect. And you know, it's at the time you didn't really realize what was going on, but in retrospect, when you look back, and that everything that was was in the in the in the mix for that situation was was ideal. It was a sort of picture book situation, and so you know, you've got what you wanted. There's nothing that you can change to make it better, and yet you're still not satisfied. So uh, I came from a, from quite a poor family. I've got a, 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 um, a difficult time in, in, in some respects. Uh, so it wasn't a, it was not to do with with sort of getting things through having lots of money, but different circumstances were and different situations where. So by the time I was about nineteen, uh, I'd begun to really notice this. So by then, maybe half a dozen times, I'd been in these sort of picture-perfect situations. And it was just really puzzling. It's like, everything is perfect. There's nothing that you could change to make it better. 
why am I miserable? Or why isn't this good enough? What's 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 wrong? And so, because uh, uh, <clears throat> then by the time I was twenty, so just before I finished university, well, actually just after I finished university, it kind of came to a head where I was on this beach in the south of Thailand. I'd sort of left England to go travelling in Southeast Asia, and uh, and. Um, the Richard will remember the Bounty chocolate bar adverts, the Taste of Paradise. He might even have written the caption for it. <laughs> he was an advertising person. The uh, the Taste of Paradise. So these chocolate bar, the Bounty chocolate bars, a coconut chocolate bar advert, and it was a sort of uh, a tropical beach with palm trees and this sort of paradisical. Situation, so it was like that in Phuket. It was the last undeveloped beach in Phuket, and and it was just absolutely, it was just perfect. It was paradise. It was the taste of paradise, and I was miserable. It was just there was there's there's this really is nothing you could change here. I don't have to work. I've got a little bit of money to travel with. I'm with lovely people. It's warm seas, tropical fishes, palms waving in the breezes. And I'm absolutely miserable. And there's nothing that you could change. So then that's where it really came to a head. And at that point, because this had happened in so yeah, half a dozen times, maybe you know, seven or eight times through through my teens. And uh, and so I, I was worried, I was puzzling about it and I've been trying to figure out how that worked, particularly the relationship between freedom and desire and and uh, so I really wanted to be free, but then it became clear that just uh, even the, though you could fulfil your what, some desires, that didn't make you free because here you are in paradise and you're not free. <laughs> you're not happy. You're not content or, or complete. So then it became really clear that uh, even though I was, you know, my head was a bit fuzzy with being a confused twenty-one-year-old by this time. Um, but it became really clear that the, the mind was the, the important thing. And I just finished, my degree was in psychology and physiology, and after three years of psychology, I didn't really understand myself any better. Um, and uh, you know, I'd studied it with the hope of, of you know, understanding my mind a bit better. But it was really clear that I needed to do something radical about my mind. And it wasn't about getting more information. I could I could absorb facts and juggle them and produce them you know, to to a reasonable degree. But I knew it's not just a matter of reading, matter of reading books or being clever. It's a different kind of a change. And um, so, and, and I, had, I had even though I had almost zero uh, experience of meditation, I I had a sense that meditation was exactly what was was needed. So I knew I had to do something radical about my mind, and uh, and that meditation was the way. It wasn't about studying anything more in terms of academia or anything. It wasn't more information I needed. It was a way to train the mind. So that uh, because it was it, it was, and I couldn't understand why other people didn't have the same experience, because you, know, you could be in a situation that was totally perfect. And yet, be completely miserable. So then, that said to me, so what's the point of, of making a lot of money or marrying the perfect girl or you know, having a, a you know, 
living out, you know, in the countryside, having a beautiful cottage, or roses around the door, or writing the great novel, or being a, a professor at Oxford University with a pipe in your pocket, <laughs> leather patches on your elbows. You know. It's like, what's the point? Because you can, have your, you can be in your Oxford quad and totally miserable. You can have your, your, your beautiful wife and 12, 12 curly-haired children you know, running around your garden in the countryside and be totally miserable. You know, it was really clear. And so that was like that, that close to me. Like, and I couldn't understand why the people I was, who I lived with and I was at university with, it's like they could just sort of think that some career was going to make them happy or some relationship was going to make them happy. And I said, well, it might. Because that was, it was kind of glare, sort of glaringly <clears throat> obvious to me. And I couldn't understand why other people thought that just having a particular job or a particular career was... Uh, was the significant thing, and, and uh, so you know, you know, uh, you know, you sit in coffee bars and have long philosophical arguments about these kind of things, as one does as a teenager, student realm. But I couldn't really come to any conclusion, and I didn't really have any resources in terms of meditation. I had a, a spiritual teacher that I, I used to visit, who was uh, more of a, 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 a bit more of, a, of an academic. Um, side you know, he was more of a theoretician or a pundit than a, than a real sort of a spiritual guide but he he was familiar with that realm he was from out of the Rudolf Steiner uh, tradition um, so he encouraged me he uh, uh, towards spiritual development and that was a very very useful things that he, he said he was quite psychic speaking about <laughs> Uh, astrology and psychic things the other day so uh, he um, uh, and the first time we met I was a hippie right and uh, kind of a bearded hippie in kind of rainbow coloured clothing and lots of hair and the first conversation we had he stopped after a few sentences and said your life's been very closely connected with horses hasn't it and I said how did you know that and he said oh it doesn't matter but there's no way he could have known that. Like if you're familiar with Ramdas's book, uh, Be Here Now, he talks about meeting his teacher, Nim Karoli Baba, and then, uh, then uh, Maharaji says to him, your mother's very sick, liver. <laughs> yeah, he'd only just found out his mother had liver cancer. And he's off in this ashram in Nainital in the Himalayan foothills, and this guru who can't even speak English knows that his mother's just been diagnosed as having cancer like he can't know nobody knows uh, you know like this same encounter with this guy uh, Trevor Ravenscroft uh, he couldn't have known that I grew up riding horses the guy who took me to the the, the meeting didn't know that so, oh doesn't matter <laughs> so that was enough to get me interested but anyway he um he was influential insofar as uh, uh, I became good friends with him and, and his family. And then uh, a, long, a year or so later, he said to me, I don't know whether I should say this to you or not, or this is, you'll take this very well, but um, you'll never find any satisfaction in life outside of spiritual development. I said, oh, thank you. Yes, <laughs> yes right. I was, I was beginning to think that. Because... Whenever I thought, because I, I was, I had a very um, blessed 
upbringing in many ways. I had very many gifts and a very good situation. So I could have gone into theatre, I could have gone into academia, I could have gone into the business world. My godfather was a partner of De Beers Diamonds. My parents were broke, but my godfather was rich. Because <laughs> <laughs> my dad asked me to be my godfather because he had lots of hula. Not because of his spiritual qualities. But um, that was helpful. That was really helpful advice, like a real sort of kalyanamitta, you know, that you're, not, you're never going to find happiness outside of spiritual development. So that was in my mind, even though... Uh, and he taught a, a couple of kinds of meditation, but they were more sort of more, a bit more narrative, like meditations that um, Steiner had developed, so the kind of prayers that, that you, you repeated. So it wasn't like uh, Samatha Vipassana, uh, anything of that sort of clarity or depth. So that was, um, by the time I got to 21, and I was on that beach in the south of Thailand, then it was really clear to me that, that the mind is what ma- matters, it doesn't matter, you know, what career you have or who you're with. You know, if your mind is a, is a mess or is unhappy, the rest is just totally beside the point. And um, so, you need to do something radical about your mind <laughs> to, to get to that uh, uh, that uh, place where you feel more uh, peaceful and, and uh, not miserable, <laughs> content, and, and at home. And. Uh, <clears throat> And so that when I showed up at Wat Pananachat and then came across the Thai forest tradition and the focus just on meditation, uh, it was just like tailor-made for me. And I didn't feel like I was renouncing anything at all because it was exactly what I was looking for. So I felt I had his massive free gift <coughs> rather than I was surrendering anything that, uh, that was valuable. Uh, and so even though I had a, a lot of Potential, and I could have done all sorts of things. Whenever I imagined that, like, well, I could kind of join a rock and roll band. Yeah, I could, I could go to uh, be a professor at Oxford. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I could go off and live in a commune and have a dozen children and grow carrots and write poems. And, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was just nothing had any kind of appeal, appeal to it. But then, uh, when I read the the words of the great spiritual teachers like uh, Chuang Tzu or um, uh, Ramana Maharshi or, or the Sufi uh, masters, the kind of words sort of jump off the page and say, yeah, <laughs> whatever that person did to get there, I'll do it. <laughs> so that was the only thing that really spoke to me. That was, uh, to, uh, I, I want to be, <laughs> be where he is. <laughs> whatever, that, whatever that person did to get there, I'll do it, I don't care. It takes me 40 years, don't mind. So that uh, it was those those painful states as a teenager where you, you, you're looking at all of the value systems of the, uh, the people around you praise, and the, the society praises, and you just, that sense of, well, so what? So what? And then, and also I had the, the, the being born in that time, I was born in '56, so that by the time I'm in my teens, it's the '60s and early '70s. So there's a lot of liberalism in the air, and um, and even though my parents were quite conservative people, they both been through the Second World War, and both you know anyone who, who lived through that felt they had a bonus to have survived it. <laughs> so they they were they were quite conservative, but they were also 
they gave quite a lot of latitude to whatever my and my, my sisters wanted to do with our lives. They just, you know, it's up to you. They weren't too, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. So that was helpful. And so that they, obviously they didn't expect me to become a Buddhist monk at the age of 21. <laughs> but uh, <coughs> the, um, they didn't stand in my way. And then they uh, and they grudgingly respected the fact that it was my choice. And they had said, "When you're 21, you can do what you like." They wanted me to get a degree, so I finished my degree, <laughs> and then had my 21st birthday. And then I said, okay, you said I could do whatever I like. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. <laughs> so that uh, I can't. I now looking back, there's there's. Uh, experiences I had as a teenager were very helpful. At the time it was just so confusing and frustrating. It's like this is this is perfect. Why what's wrong with me? But it just showed it showed me that the attitude of mind is it makes all the difference. Because also at the other end of the spectrum you can be in a really miserable situation, something really painful and difficult. And you can be happy as a clam, you know, because totally fine. And uh, it's, you know, you're on some long hike through the mountains and you're kind of soaked to the bone and you run out of food and you're freezing cold and, and, and you think, this is all right. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, when I was on two dog once with Ajahn Sumato and uh, everything was wet. Everything, it was this incredible rain we'd had for days and days and days. So there was one dry sock between three of us. <laughs> Everything else was soaking wet. And then he, he made the observation, you know, climbing into a wet sleeping bag is only suffering if you think it is. <laughs> so if you, if, you just go, if you just let yourself know, know the feelings as they are, it's all right. You'd never choose it to climb into a wet sleeping bag on a Morecambe Bay in a rainstorm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you realise yeah, you can you can be in a really sort of difficult situation and it's absolutely fine. So the mind is the forerunner of all things. You've heard that before. That was that was the Buddha, not me. <laughs> In one of your talks, Sanjan, you mentioned Brother Lawrence and being in the presence of God, uh, or remembering the presence of God. Um, it's <clears throat> yeah, the practice, the practice of the presence of God. Mm, practice of the presence of God. Um, I found that extremely inspiring. Um, I was trying to find parallels to that in our kind of tradition. Uh, Buddhanusati, Chaganusati, things like that. Oh, Dhammanusati. Dhammanusati. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they're just remembering everything is Dhamma. Mm -hmm. or like, uh, because he was, a, he was illiterate. He was, a, mm -hmm. uh, he was a kitchen boy in the monastery. And, um, you know, they're supposed to, if they want to become a monk, they, they're supposed to learn Latin and, mm. you know, learn all the, 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 the um, hymns and the chants and such like, the liturgy. 
and yeah, he was he couldn't read, and so he was in the kitchen, and uh, he really tried hard, but he just couldn't get his head around the alphabet and all this reading, and so he had to just sort of learn it by listening, and um, and then and uh, anyway he so he was really struggling, and he went to the this is about. 300 years ago, but uh, 18th century, maybe late 17th century, um, but uh, in, 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 is in France, and he, um, so he really struggled, so he, 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 uh, he spoke to the abbot about it, and the abbot said, well, don't, well, don't worry about it. It's, it's very similar to, um, there's a one or two encounters in the, you get in the Pali Canon where someone says to the Buddha, I can't remember all these rules. <laughs> And anyway, the, the abbot just says, well, don't worry about learning to read and, and write. You know, so the others can take care of that. This, you know, you're, you're a helpful guy in the kitchen. and just, just remember the presence of God. Just do that. Don't worry about anything else. You're just stressing yourself out. You haven't really got the, the, uh, the skills of the reading, so don't, don't beat yourself up over them. So he was very comforted by that and just made that as a practice. <coughs> and then... Uh, and he, and so that's what he did for many years, and he became such a. Um, he was still in the kitchen, <laughs> but he became really famous as a sort of spiritual advisor and a mentor for many people because, he, you know, no matter what happened, he was always very very cool. And whether he had, there was you know they ran out of food or it was the middle of winter and all they had was sort of pickles and bran. Um, that he could he could make a meal out of it, or you know, suddenly the the, the bishop with a hundred people in his entourage would show up and want <laughs> a banquet. You know, he could always just sort of manage the situation, never got flustered. And when there was arguments between people in the kitchen, as we know, kitchens often have mm-hmm. <laughs> a certain amount of friction between the people in the kitchen. Then he was always able to mediate and uh, and to. Uh, to help out to the point where he became an advisor for like bishops and popes and, and kings and local dukes and duchesses um, because they valued his advice so they'd seek him out even though he still couldn't read <laughs> but that was his his practice his practice was just to essentially just be uh, be awake to the the sacredness of the moment moment by moment and so then, uh, so yeah, you could take it if you're interested to develop that sort of language in a Buddhist way. Mm-hmm. Then, like, you could take a, a comment by uh, by Ajahn Chah that something like, you know, inside is Dhamma, outside is Dhamma, everything is Dhamma. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, that the Dhamma is what what is experienced, and that which is, that was that which is experiencing the Dhamma is also the Dhamma. You know, it's in. Uh, <coughs> the, the talk Dhamma nature in um, that uh, so you just take a little phrase like that and just use that to reflect on but there's a little book mm-hmm. um, that was a sort of collection of his teachings that his other friends in the monastery wrote down <laughs> huh? he couldn't he, can, he couldn't yeah. write <laughs> so uh, they, uh, they sort of recollected some of his sayings or mm-hmm. stories about him yeah. and it's just called The Practice of the Presence of God mm-hmm. It was deeply inspiring.
So going back to your question about my uh, early life, so what, what, made, what made you ask the question? <laughs> if I might ask. Yes, um, I was thinking when things are going so well, whether there was any kind of past uh, connection that made you to uh, made you to think like that. Now you're miserable and uh, you were not happy, satisfied. What was the reason why it was bothering kind of you to find? A satisfactory thing in life. So I was uh, that because relating to my life too. Sometimes I I find that everything has been going so good and things like that. But then at the same time, sometimes my mind is not being uh, happy in the sense not uh, satisfied. Mm -hmm. Especially you know getting old and seeing my husband aging and always projecting to the future about children, even though they are adults. So, so that unsatisfactory nature is always mm -hmm. there. So I, now I try to ground myself practicing, but it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy yeah. being a mother and a householder. So many things going on, downsizing, finding another small place, simplify all that matters because I have to do it. So this is <laughs> what it is. <laughs> yes. So I was thinking about you too when everything was going well for Chanamara as a youngster. Why is it that was, he was not in a state of... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have any um, conscious memories of past lives or anything, but uh, it, did, it did... I felt jealous of my school friends that they could just sort of stop thinking. And I was always trying to figure things out. And, uh, and you know, I drank a lot. That was the way I survived. I drank more and more until I <coughs> stopped drinking when I was 21. But, but uh, I used to feel jealous of them like, because they seemed to be able to, to sort of let themselves be sort of carried away by situations or not care so much. And I, I just didn't seem to have an off switch. Do you, do, you know, do you know what I mean? I couldn't just stop thinking about it. And only if I was had more than enough to drink. So that I would drink to stop feeling or to stop trying to wonder and such like. And so that uh, I was always... Um, and so I sometimes look and I thought, if only I could just be, just be like them. <laughs> and, but, but then what I, what I found was there was one or two of the people that I grew up with, that then I'd have a, 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 like a, a real conversation with them, and he go, "Oh, okay, I'm not the only one." <laughs> and uh, the, 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 there's some kind of um, aspect of mind that is is looking at a bigger picture. And like I say, when I, I, I couldn't understand why people could just go into a career or sort of leave the leave the college and just and then take their degree and go and work in a bank or, or go and you know, think that getting a master's degree was going to make them happy. Or, and, that, and I said, oh, funny, I could be like that. So I used to feel envious, uh, jealous of, of that, um, because it just seemed to, you know, I couldn't switch it off, this, this thing that always wants to understand and to, to uh, 
look at the look at the bigger picture. And uh, so, as a teenager, it was really frustrating, you know, that, uh, in some respects. But it was it was also led to a lot of good discussions in other <laughs> in other respects. But uh, I, yeah, but in in retrospect, I'm really really happy that I couldn't switch it off, <laughs> and that uh, that that discontent just wouldn't go away. So uh, yeah, it's probably from Barami of previous lifetimes where there's that you just worldly goals are just never going to satisfy, and that uh, so when when you want them to satisfy, it's really frustrating. But I kept getting this: Is this it? Is this it really? So what? And then, <laughs> so then that there's a sort of a big blank, and so then I just drank myself stupid, not just to not feel that. Uh, but then I realised by the time I was twenty that if I kept doing that, I wouldn't live past twenty-five. Yeah. <coughs> Either through illness or through a car crash or something, you know, you, know, you, you can't just blot your, blot your mind out and, and, and function in the world. So my twenty-first birthday present to myself was to stop drinking and then to go to Asia. So I kind of deliberately turned towards it because also, not just from what that man Trevor Ravenscroft had said, but I, I had that feeling in myself that spirituality was really the only thing that was meaningful and interesting. I just had no idea how to approach that or to develop that. And then uh, four months after I left England, I walked into Wat Nanachar. So, again, I'm not sure where that came from, but I felt like this hand had plucked me off of the beach in the south of Thailand and moved me a thousand miles up to the Isan, mm-hmm. dropped me in this forest in Uban. Okay, go. Because... <laughs> <laughs> I'd never read a Buddhist book. I'd never heard of Theravada or Mahayana Buddhism. I thought the Buddha was Chinese. <laughs> I was, yeah, I frequently mentioned that. I, we were cleaning the shrine a few months after we got to Wat Nanachar, and I said, it's funny how all the Buddha images look Indian. And yeah, this other novice said, why is that funny? And I said, well, because he's Chinese. <laughs> give, give me this look. Like, no, he wasn't. Yeah. So I've always been ready to be an authority, even when I don't have like, much reliable information. So yeah, everyone knows the Buddha was Chinese. No, he wasn't. He was from Nepal. <laughs> so I knew nothing, and yet I managed to walk into this Wapananacha and this way of life, and uh, it was a perfect fit. So who knows what what the uh, uh, sort of karmic wheels were were turning. I feel you know, very blessed in many respects. Like Ajahn, Ajahn V was just telling me this story of when he was a layman, he was in Hamburg. He'd been working working in Hamburg and getting really really depressed, and uh, he just went to the university. He could speak some German because he, he was born in Germany. He could speak some German, and he went into the the sort of the, the student um, <coughs> student facility, uh, student offices in in the university in Hamburg, and, and said, um, uh, and it was a sort of student travel section. 
And uh, he said, can you show me what you've got on your list? And she said, well, where do you want to go? And he said, anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so he had no particular um, plan to go to Asia. He'd already been in India. And then then he just looked down the list and saw Thailand. Oh, I'll go to Thailand. Six weeks later, he was a novice. You've probably heard him tell that story a few times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why did Thailand on that list just suddenly sort of jump out at him and say, oh yes, that's a good idea. You know, it's impossible to say, but don't really need to, to know or have an idea, but uh, can see these things work out like this. Especially now in your case with so many responsibilities and limits at Amaravati, does your mind go to the future? Not much. Hmm? Not much. Not much. No. Um, for the first few years of, of monastic life, I noticed my mind was scripting the future all the time. It would just sort of be imagining conversations and, and predicting events and, and planning what to say or what this person was going to say or what I was going to say and so on and so forth and uh, I think on the weekend I was saying yeah, nobody ever followed the script <laughs> you know, no matter how many how, how well worked out it was you know, I knew my lines <laughs> but nobody else would follow theirs <laughs> so after about six years somebody just sort of snapped and went oh forget it and stopped stopped doing that because you get so used to seeing over and over and over and over and over again that what you think is going to happen doesn't happen and things that that you never even thought of uh, what do happen so you you just get used to discussing what looks like a good way forward setting a direction making a plan trying to take all the different things into consideration and then okay See what happens. You sort of set a, set a direction and then be adaptable. So, like Amravati, we've got a 30-year plan to rebuild the entire monastery. I've got no idea how we're going to do that. I mean, we've got a plan. There pieces <laughs> of paper with marks on them. We've had lots of meetings. Um, but, you know, it's a £30 million project. 8,000 square metres of buildings, 80,000 square feet. Retreat centre would be about six million. Monks Vihara about four or five. Sala two or three million. Lots of money. <laughs> I have no idea where it's going to come from, but I don't worry about it. You know, we make our plans and we do what we do. And if the universe rises up to support it, great. If it doesn't, well, we've got our bowls and our rows and practice the dharma. Whatever happens. So I'm not wedded to the the idea that it will be, all be done by the time I die, or whether I'll still be there, or I'll be kicked out, or keeled over dead, or 
you know, you just make your plans and you try and keep um, people in uh, who are involved and who are affected. You know, keep them in the loop and uh, consult and and uh, discuss and and then see how things unfold. Because yeah, adap- uh, <coughs> adaptability is uh, is the key, and the, and the and it also uh, Lumpur Sumedho is incredibly helpful in terms of speaking about his attitude towards coming to England, and that uh, and then he would be very he would be very forthright or very very public about what worked for him and what didn't work for him. And he'd make it really clear from way, way back. He'd say, "As soon as I, th- I think it's my job to bring Buddha Dharma to the West, the, the Thai forest tradition is a pure um, formulation of the Buddha's practice, the Buddha's way, and it's my, and it's my responsibility to bring this to the Western world." That he'd be suffering immediately. <laughs> <laughs> or if the the English Sangha Trust, the group who invited, uh, said, "Well, it's." They've, they've invited us to, to spread Dharma in England and to establish monasteries here. So as soon as he'd think that way, he'd suffer. But rather, we've been invited here to receive the four requisites. And, to, and the English Sangha Trust have undertaken to support us to practice as bhikkhus. That's it. <laughs> if monasteries arise, fine. If they don't arise, fine. And then we'll, we'll just practice as we do and, see what, and we'll see what happens. If things come together, great. If they fall apart, that's fine too. And with that attitude, you're not making any worldly goal the purpose of what you're doing, but rather practicing Dhamma moment by moment is what you're doing. And so that then the... Uh, w- and then with that attitude, then of course, <laughs> uh, within a few years, I just made it had like... You know, yeah, Amar- yeah, along with Chitta, says Amravati, and then the monastery in Northumberland, and down in the West Country, and places popping up all over the Western world. Um, but it was not because let's start a campaign to start monasteries all over the world. It's like let's practice the Dhamma here and now. So that uh, if you have that priority, then you just don't think about the future because you, the what exactly will happen is immaterial you know whether you get sick or you don't get sick whether your hearing goes or your eyesight goes or whether your people praise you or criticize you you can't control it you, know, you do your best to work with it but it's not under your control so <clears throat> whether the money will come or the money won't come or all the money comes and you spend it badly and make some stupid expensive mistakes can happen <laughs> or you spend it very wisely and people criticize you anyway <laughs> shouldn't have spent it on this you should have spent it on that so you uh, because you don't have an investment in a, in a certain outcome it doesn't really matter what happens because you you, you're taking refuge in your in adaptability so looking after your family you know, your, your living situation or what to do with your children your, or with your husband and your own health and so on you just I don't know you or your 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 life at all, really. But um, if you have that that attitude, then uh, if things go well, you can work with it. If things go badly, you can work with it. it you're not invested in certain outcomes because as soon as you say, "Oh, as long as X doesn't happen, I'll be fine," and then X happens, <laughs> but it, it was you know it was 
you that set your mind up to say this is the one thing that can't happen <laughs> you know like, there's a wall you walk into it ow you know <laughs> so that um, letting go of of investment in particular outcomes or or also just I used to worry a lot I used to be a real uh, fretter I would I would worry and fret about how things are going to be so I had to work on that a lot so this is an area I I put a lot of attention into in the, in the practice but uh, because you see over and over and over and over again that the way things work out you can adapt it's okay but where, where the worrying comes out, oh if this happens what are we going to do how's it going to be um, and then you're, so you're sitting in a car on the M25 stationary there's a plane you're supposed to be catching it's supposed to be in the air It's supposed to be at the airport in half an hour and the car is not moving. You've got cars all around you. Nothing's moving on the M25. This is a very common experience. Yeah. Any of us who've been in England know. So, we're going to miss the plane. We're going to miss the plane. We must miss the plane. We're going to miss the plane. Well, yeah. if you reflect, well, either we will catch the plane or we won't catch the plane. There are other planes. We might be able to get on another plane or we might not. We might get to the place where we want to go, or we might not get there. If we get there, that's that's good. If we don't get there, that's okay too. You just say to the people, sorry, we got stuck in traffic, we missed the plane, they won't replace my ticket. Sorry about that. <laughs> and you, uh, so over and over and over and over again, you realise that you can adapt to different outcomes. And it's all in the attitude. Attitude is everything. So it's, if it's, uh, that's why I talk a lot about success and failure. Like last night, I think I was talking about that. Yeah, if you if you make the resolution to learn from whatever happens, rather than I want success is this, failure is that. So, and if this happens, that's good. It's an absolute good. And if that happens, it's an absolute bad. Yeah, you're, you're dead in the water already. You know, you you just created the causes of a lot of suffering. So it's in terms of worrying about the future, what's going to happen with your children, or your finances, or your living situation, or your husband, or the monastery, and so on. It's, it's, it all hinges around your attitude. And then those reflections on uncertainty, like uh, as Ajahn Chah would say, uh, uncertainty, you're not sure, that's the standard of the noble ones. The more we keep reminding ourselves of that, say it's, not, it's not a sure thing. It's challenging to the ego, like I was saying to our friend here, it's, it's threatening to the ego. So don't say that, don't say that. Just tell me it's going to be all right. Like, well, I don't know that it will. <laughs> it might be all wrong. But that's okay too. Uh, that it's, it's threatening to the ego, but it's liberating to the heart. Because as you turn towards it, then you recognize, well, why should my family be the one family that nothing unpleasant ever happens to? Statistically, that's kind of unlikely. That this the way nature works. Oh, so that you realise that you've been creating this tension in your heart, wanting the impossible, and fearing that something unpleasant is going to happen, and that uh, as if that was something that was wrong or bad. When you you turn towards it, 
<laughs> Very keen to get in and listen. <laughs> Many years ago, uh, I don't know what, what your occupation has been, but um, I was leading a retreat um, about a years ago, and this guy, um, <coughs> he was he was Asian, I think he was a, a Chinese American, and uh, he'd come all the way from from the Midwest to to, to do a ten day retreat at Amravati. I didn't know, I never met him before, and then we're having an interview, and he was in his sort of mid seventies, about seventy two, seventy five. And uh, and so uh, he looked, came into the interview, and he was very sort of harrowed and looked kind of anxious. And he said, "Yeah, uh, um, yeah, and the meditation is not going very well. I'm just, I'm just thinking about the future all the time, and just I'm really, and just my mind keeps going into the future, and you know, planning and planning and wondering and pondering." So I assumed that he was uh, fearing death. That you know, he's in the mid seventies and uh, creating the future. So I go into this long spiel about about reflection on death and not fearing death and such like. And so after I paused for for breath, he said, "I'm not worried about dying. <laughs> you know, just planning." <laughs> and then, uh, so then we had an interesting conversation. So it wasn't that his his mind was worrying about the future; it was just making plans. Mm. Then I found out that he'd spent the last thirty years working on a newspaper which had three editions a day Oof. in Chicago. Three editions a day, and it was his job to kind of be a, like a, 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 a head. He's sort of he's he's setting up the evening edition while the, the morning edition is is, uh, is is on the streets, and the, the midday edition is is just being loaded. And I said, "Well, no wonder you're thinking ahead because that's your job. <laughs> you know, for the last thirty years, you got to be three steps ahead of." of uh, I mean that, that that's a bit of a that sort of thing doesn't happen anymore with the with the internet, but uh, it was it was a good lesson that uh, yeah there's karma you know he's he conditioned his mind in that way so of course that's what it does you can't just switch it off if that, your whole professional life has been planning the future and, and arranging the you know the next edition but one uh, then that's going to have its effect. So what you've done with your mind and, and your work and what you've been responsible for over the years that has its, that has its impact. So uh, you can't just switch it off and say, okay, well, I won't do that anymore. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you can't just decide to change that. Because the, you can't undo causes that have already been caused. But how you relate to the effects is up to you. You know that we can have a an impact on in the present moment. Um, uh, that it's it's entirely up. You know you can't change what's what's been caused. You, you but you the the way that the mind receives the effects of those past causes is uh, we can have a uh, uh, an impact on. And then the causes that we plant in the present also that's something that you know, this this mind. Uh, has a capacity to make a difference. So the attitude that we receive the effects of past causes, and the attitude behind planting new causes, that does that's where we can make an effect in the in the present moment. So you can't undo what you've done for the last fifty years or seventy years, <laughs> but you can you can work on the way that's received, and, and relate to that.
so that then you can uh, ameliorate the 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 the, uh, the, the what you do in the present with that will uh, affect what arises in the future. So you can ameliorate that that habit by not sort of feeding it or, or um, kind of sustaining it either by resenting it or fearing it or believing in it or or worrying about it, but recognizing, oh, this is how it works. Therefore, if I if I have a skillful attitude towards that in the present, then I'm planting seeds in the present that are, are beneficial for for the how they will ripen in the future. That makes sense. And that's just using an ongoing reflection of it's not a sure thing. As soon as your mind makes a judgment or a prediction or a plan, it's not a sure thing, not a sure thing, not a sure thing. Those those very simple reflections that Lumpur Chah would would suggest are really helpful. Like just to, you know, it's not a sure thing, or... um, Whenever the mind makes a judgment, this is beautiful, that's ugly, this is good, that's bad, this is right, that's wrong. Just to, to ask yourself, is that so? Yeah, is that so? This is really great, is that so? This is awful, is that so? This is just what I wanted, is that so? This is just what I didn't want to happen, is that so? And it just balances everything out. It's a very powerfully leveling quality. Or even more simple... So, <laughs> this is great, this is just what I wanted. So, this is awful, it's all falling apart. So, and again, just if you apply that, it just, it, uh, it's a great leveler. <laughs>